And during that time, during the four years of their rule, approximately two million Cambodians died of disease, disease of starvation and executions. And that's at least 25% of the population. So it's quite amazing that my family of seven, um, which are my parents and then my four siblings and myself being the youngest, survived that time. I consider my life as starting when I was eight years old. Wow. Um, and my leadership journey started then. I think the this next generation of women are unapologetic. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, unapologetic about uh, what they care about, about the purpose, you know, in life and the role that they see that they have in the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Powering Up our cross-generational podcast about leadership, power, and gender. I'm Ann Doyle, author of Powering Up, How America's Women Achievers Become Leaders. And I'm Ann's niece, Monica Doyle, and I bring the millennial perspective to this podcast. A whole lot of very different, interesting (laughs) perspective. Uh, You know, Monica, our guest today makes her home in uh, the Dallas, Texas area, but she is originally from the other side of the world, and she has an amazing story of survival, of courage, uh, resiliency, tenacity, and now leadership. which began as a young girl fleeing with her family from genocide during the Cambodian Civil War. Well, and I actually um, have a little bit of knowledge on that because I I got to write a paper on the Cambodian Civil War in college. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I look forward to talking about that. But first, I wanted to stop and take a second and uh, give a little bit of recognition to our friend Tamara Colton, Rabbi Tamara Colton, for recently releasing her book, which we've spoken about at length on the show before, Oranges for Eve, My Brave and Beautiful Badass Journey to the Feminine Divine. Yeah, it's an amazing book. I got to read several versions of it as she was going through the writing process. And um, she launched her book in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan last Sunday. And uh, Monica and I were there. Uh, Another niece of mine, Lucy Doyle, was there, an incredible group. But listeners who aren't Jewish might be wondering, uh, what's the deal with this Oranges for Eve title? And uh, I learned from Tamara the background on this, which is that a rabbi once said, a woman belongs on the bima, which is really in a leadership position in the Jewish congregation or reading from the Torah, as much as an orange belongs on the Seder plate. So many Jews now include an orange on their Seder plate to show that women and other marginalized groups are most definitely welcome. Uh, What's been intriguing to you about knowing about her book, I mean, interviewing here on the podcast, Monica, and then being at the book launch? Well, honestly, I really like Tamara's vision for women and spirituality. Um, me personally, I'm, I'm not, I don't hold any, you know, deep beliefs or anything, but I'm certainly very interested in spirituality. And I really love the way that Tamara seeks to make spirituality a safe place for women, because yeah. traditionally it's been a bit of a tough position to be in to be a woman to be spiritual to be religious you know because religions are sort of stacked against women and Tamara Mm. has this vision of a future that is not that that welcomes women into spirituality and really embraces femininity womaninity and 
in spirituality. So that was probably the most exciting thing about it to me. So let's bring in our fabulous guest, Tier Sai Suzuki, into this conversation. Hey there, welcome, Tier. Thank you. You know, I first uh, learned about you and got the chance to talk to you for the first time, get to know you. Um, uh, while I was working on my book, Powering Up, and I was looking for different generations of um, very, very diverse, um, aspiring women leaders with powerful stories. And um, let me just say a little bit about Tyr. Um, she is a Gen X, so we've got three generations here today. We're uh, perspective. Uh, executive with EY, which is a global business consulting and accounting firm. And as EY's America's advisory talent leader, she has responsibility for tapping the talent and really engaging the full potential of 21,000 professionals in, in North America and South America. Yeah, her career credentials are very impressive, but what intrigues me a lot is her personal story. Uh, Tyr was only three years old when she and her family fled the Cambodian genocide, spending several years in refugee and labor camps before arriving in Dallas, Texas as a nine-year-old refugee speaking no English. And now she's a business executive and mother of four. That's really amazing. Yeah, I know. Where do we begin? Uh, and I, I need to also mention uh, that she earned her um, Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering from Southern Methodist University. So welcome again, Tier. And, uh, you know, let's, uh, there's so much we want to talk about, but let's, let's go back. Uh, let's start with your earliest memories of escaping civil war in Cambodia. How old were you? And what do you remember? Thank you, Anne and Monica. I'm so glad to be here um, on your amazing podcast. Yes, yeah, so I was born in the early 70s in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Phnom Penh is the capital. And uh, for those on your podcast or listening to your podcast who may not know, Cambodia is a third world country in Southeast Asia. And uh, I, I actually don't know how uh, when I was actually born. <laughs> I was either born in 1972 or 1973. Oh in any case, when the Khmer Rouge, which is the communist regime that was led by Pol Pot, um, had their victory in the Civil War, I was either two or three years old. And that was when they drove all of us out of our homes in the cities and into the countryside and forced us in forced us into labor camps. So as a, as a two or three year old, um, I walked with my family on foot for days, maybe 15 days or so, I think when we got to our first, uh, to our first destination, which we didn't know uh, where it would be. Uh, we were only guided by um, fire shots. And so I, you know, my memory of that time is limited because I was young, but I've definitely heard stories or have had dreams uh, and maybe some deep-rooted uh, memories that maybe I didn't know their memories. Um, and when I became an, a, you know, older and, and an adult, I have been very curious in terms of my family's history. Um, you know, certainly very proud of my parents in terms of what they've been able to achieve given the hardships and the struggles and the difficulties that they lived through with five kids, you know, during, uh, during the genocide. But um, we survived the genocide, the four years of the genocide in which the Khmer Rouge were in rule from 1975 to 1979. And we, um, 
obviously during that time did not have enough to eat. Um, my parents, you know, as parents really had very, very little control in terms of whether or not they would live or die or whether their kids would live or die and where food would come from. Um, and so it was, uh, it was a, a really terrible time. Um, the educated were persecuted, doctors, lawyers, business owners, teachers, uh, Christians, Buddhists, Muslims were also targeted as well. Books were burned, schools were outlawed, hospitals destroyed. Neighbors and family members were turned against each other and kids were also turned against their parents because the communist regime wanted to turn the country back to a socialist agrarian society. And they want everyone to just kind of follow, um, follow their rule and not have their own agency or have their own um, way of thinking. And during that time, during the four years of their rule, approximately 2 million Cambodians died of disease, diseases, starvation, and executions. And that's at least 25% of the population. So it's quite amazing that my family of seven, um, which are my parents and then my four siblings and myself being the youngest, survived that time. Yeah. And, and so, I, you know, as I think back, I just cannot imagine being a parent living through that. Um, my mom was 37 years old when it all got started. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we got to the US, she was in her 40s, uh, which is right around where I am today. Well, and in terms of sheer numbers, it really is like um, amazing that you did live through it. Um, so I actually had the, um, I feel like fortune is not the right word. <laughs> I had the opportunity to study um, the Cambodian Civil War in college. And one of the biggest things that surprised me about it is that people in the U.S. almost, it's like almost a black spot in, in U.S. history. We don't know about it. Most people don't realize that it even happened. And a lot of that has to do with the Vietnam War, which was happening very close to that time as well. And so lots of people simply just never realized that that happened. And it was a genocide. It was a massive amount of people killed. And, you know, one of the most interesting things that I read was that, you know, people with glasses were killed because they were believed to be more educated because they had glasses. You know, oh, if you had if that's you could right. Yeah. If you could read, you were literate. So it really is amazing to be talking to you today because we're fortunate to have you today. Thank you. And it's, it was interesting that at the beginning of this podcast, um, you talked about um, Tamara. Uh, I don't know Tamara, but um, I do have the opportunity now to serve on the Dallas Holocaust and Human Rights Museum. Mm. And so I look forward to uh, learning more about her book. And uh, yeah, uh, she'd be a fantastic speaker. Her. And mm -hmm. I will send you her fabulous book as a start. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, and actually, you know, people in the U.S., the biggest thing that we can compare, you know, to the Cambodian genocide was the Holocaust. You know, lots of people in the U.S. were, were extremely blessed to have never known that type of horror. Yeah. Um, and so if anybody has the opportunity to look it up, it's definitely something that I feel like more people should know about. Uh, there's more genocide happening in the world than people realize. That's right. I remember reading, you know, during the Holocaust, six million people died. And Cambodia, I, the Cambodian genocide, I believe, is the uh, genocide where we had the second largest number of people die 
um, in you know a short period of time. In yeah. a small country, mm-hmm. a very small, small country. Right. I mean, twenty five percent of the population. It's just right, right. Unimaginable. Well, so, and so few people know about it. Yeah, and 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 pick us up because I know that it all started when you were this very young child, um, but you and your family managed to make it to the United States as refugees. And how old were you? Pick up the story there, T. Here. Sure. So after after the South Vietnamese defeated the Khmer Rouge and we were liberated, my family um, returned to Phnom Penh. Uh, and it actually took us six months to walk from where, literally six months to walk from where we were wow. um, back to where we were hoping to find our home and, and, and go back to our home in Phnom Penh. But of course, at the time, there was no um, lawful ownership of property, right? Everything was destroyed. And so people just took whatever home they found. And so when we got back to Phnom Penh, there was, there was nowhere to live. And so the reason we went back was because we had one of my brothers, my second oldest brother, we had been separated from him, you know, during the, uh, um, the, the labor camps and during the, the genocide. And so we were hoping to get reunited with him, find him when we went back to Phnom Penh. And luckily we we did get reunited with him. And then shortly after my parents decided to, that we would escape uh, Cambodia on foot (laughs) to go to the Thailand refugee camp. Um, We did make it to the Thailand refugee camps in 1979 um, and lived in various camps for about two years. And during that time was when we became Christians. And it was also a time where there were many relief organizations supporting and helping the refugees. And so, um, you know, there there was no schooling, uh, but I went to church on on Sundays. And that was where I learned how to read Cambodian, um, actually just by reading the Bible and singing the hymns. Um, I speak third grade level uh, Cambodian uh, today, but uh, I was fortunate to to get a little bit literate in the Cambodian language in the refugee camp. Mm-hmm. And we were sponsored by the U.S. Catholic Conference Migration and Refugee Services Office here in Dallas, Texas okay. in 1981. Mm-hmm. And so when my family were able to come here to Dallas, I was eight years old. And so as an eight-year-old, I was um, registered into the third grade. So that was the first time when I started school in my life. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, right. And I remember when I talked to you um, the first time when I met you and you told me a little bit about the fact that I believe that you really became the translator for your parents. <laughs> I mean, that's the fact that young kids' brains pick up language a lot quicker oh. than adults. And I could go off on a rant about that, too, you know, yeah. the value of, of young language, children yeah. learning language. Tell us that's about right. that. Yeah, tell us about that part. I mean, talk about early leadership training. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Anne, for remembering that. Yes, yeah, as I, as I thought about my leadership journey, I and actually, I, I consider my life as starting when I was eight years old. Wow. Um, and my leadership journey started then. 
uh, I became independent. I had the opportunity to to <laughs> become independent and to lead, if you will. Of course, I didn't realize it back then. But yeah. I, looking back, I I now see that I had a tremendous opportunity to lead at a very young age, at the age of eight. Mm-hmm. And I actually signed my own report cards, my own <laughs> forms. She's doing great. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, helped to translate for my parents, you know, with their, with, with our teachers, with the doctors, with the lawyers. So Mm -hmm. it, it was just something that I did because I had to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't something that was intentional. It just kind of, that was how life was for us. And um, so I, I, I now looking back view that as um, a blessing that, you know, we, we, didn't have much means financially or, um, you know, knowing the language or understanding socially how things happen, but we somehow figured it out along the way. And so that has been uh, very much an aspect of my leadership development that started at a very young age. Mm -hmm. Um, And going into middle school, I um, also you know, that was when I started to join student organizations. Mm-hmm. I joined the newspaper staff, if you can imagine. I mean, I get, you know, at that point I could read and I could speak English, <laughs> but English was still not my strong suit. You know, I was, I was much stronger in math. And then in high school, I started venturing into actually leadership positions as a freshman in high school. I ran for the student council for the first time and uh, was accepted in because not many people had run <laughs> that year. And then my sophomore year in high school, I joined the Key Club, which is a service, you know, student service, com- community service organization. As soon as it was open to girls, which was during my sophomore year in high school, I joined and then became the president of the Key Club the very <laughs> next year as a junior, as well as student body president of my high school, uh, which was a predominantly um you know, black high school at Skyline High School here in Dallas. And so as I, you know, you wouldn't think that um, a young refugee would, would have that kind of a path. Um, But I, I had those opportunities and I, and I took them and all along, you know, when I started working, when I started my career, it's interesting that I still didn't view myself you know, as a very strong leader, I, I really struggled still, you know, with, with confidence. So maybe something we can talk about as well during this podcast. Um, well, that's uh, that virus that I, I, I say that girls, female children catch, yeah. you know, that mm. um, haunts us, you know, and, um, you know, we, we can't escape it. It's there mm-hmm. and implanted at a very early age. And um, women just have to sort of consciously overcome it. I mean, amazing that even you felt mm-hmm. that way. So I'm not the only one then, Anne. Is that, is that right? No, yeah. you know that, Tier. Well, you know as well as anyone. Yeah. And we've discussed it on here a lot, you know, this idea that, you know, men are raised to believe that every morning when they wake up, they're, the world is theirs, whereas women, you know, we have to convince ourselves of it. <laughs> yeah, not only the world, we have to convince ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, and one thing that I definitely want to talk about, especially going through your journey, is um, is that you were a refugee. You know, right now what's happening in this country, we have refugees and we're treating them like they aren't human beings. And yet here we have you, a, you know, a very 
valuable person that we're all lucky to have in our country, and yet we're devaluing people with a similar plate. And I was just wondering if you could give us your opinion on on things like that, like being a refugee and seeing how we're struggling with, you know, foreign refugees right now. It's a complex challenge, you know, for, for our country and for other countries as well. And, you know, when I when I think about the massive, um, the massive issues, it's, you know, everyone has their own uh, perspective and their own lens and their own way of thinking around how we solve this this problem. Um, but ultimately, I think what all of us as leaders need to keep in mind is, to your point, Monica, um, we're all human beings, you know, with the same needs, um, with the same desires for our, for our families and for, you know, for our loved ones and for ourselves. And we, you know, I, I tend to operate with more compassion than, <laughs> than less. Um, and so from a policy standpoint, you know, I, um, I won't claim to know what the right answers are, um, but I think that if we kind of continue to keep in mind that it's important for us to act with compassion and, and it's important for us to kind of put ourselves in the other person's shoes and have some empathy, um, I think we can come, come up with better solutions. Um, well. But it's, it's very challenging. And do you think that there is a fundamental lack of information on the part of the American people? I mean, that's pretty much how I tend to feel about it because, you know, I, for most of my life, I didn't know about the Cambodian Civil War and this genocide of people. For a lot of my life, you know, I was fortunate to only know certain things, and I think that's a big reason that a lot of the American people have trouble connecting, you know, beyond their front doors. We we live this privileged life. So I guess my my biggest question being, do you think that there's a lack of education of people in this country, in a first world country, towards people in a third world country? I do. I do, absolutely. And I also think that there's a, a lack of reaching out Right. So not only a lack of education, but a lack, a, of, a lack of reaching out in terms of um, outside of your circle. Right. And engaging with different communities in order to uh, better learn and appreciate and understand and have your lives be enriched. <laughs> you know, uh, and that's why diversity and inclusiveness is so important, not only in the work, but in our everyday lives. That uh, it's, it's important for us to be um, to be, you know, to be networking and socializing and engaging with people that are different from us. Um, you know, the latest the latest book that I'm reading now is uh, Talking to Strangers. Mm. I think that's what it's called um, by Malcolm Gladwell. Oh. And yeah, it's very interesting because he talks about how we don't understand each other. Mm. Mm-hmm. And he goes back and, and, you know, revisit kind of our history you know, the, the history of wars, the history of um, conflicts, and how we get into them. Um, and he also talks about, you know, the events in the U.S. in terms of, you know, Black Lives Matters and, and the police and all of that, that um, it's because we really don't, we really don't understand each other, and we're not really talking to each other to understand. Um, and it's, it's when we don't reach out, and we don't diversify 
our uh, way of engaging, um, we have that lack of not only education, but just a lack of appreciation and understanding. You know, Tier, I want to um, get into some of your um, other your work today uh, as a, a leader, a, an executive with EY. Um, you have a lot of responsibility, and it's amazing how how what you have achieved in your lifetime. But you know, I was I thinking about talking to you today. Is uh, I remember when I first met you, we met by phone. You know, and. Um, I, I was interviewing you, and um, you know, you at that time were working for Accenture. You were a consultant. You were traveling. Uh, you had three sons. You were pregnant with your fourth child. And I mean, I finally said to you, um, you know, are, are you? I mean, how do you deal with all this? You must be incredibly stressed. And I'll never forget what you said to me. You said, No, no, I'm not stressed. I'm busy, <laughs> but <laughs> and um, but but you put it in the context of you know I mean the journey that I have been on and and watched what my parents went through is uh, this is nothing uh, I can manage this. So what would you share um, with other women who may be feeling stressed who actually are really just busy? Any advice for them? Yeah, I. I think my my mindset at the time and even now is has always been you know for women don't be too hard on yourself um and i i think that we tend to be we try we try to do it all and we try to be perfect or great at everything and we beat ourselves up and while I had a lot going on then, and I have a lot going on now, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think what has helped me was to be kind to myself mm-hmm. and to kind of see my situation as um, things that I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the process of learning. I'm in the process of becoming. I'm in the process of getting better. I'm not, I'm not already great, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so when I drop a ball or two, whether it be with my kids or at work or um, with friends or with my parents, you know, I, I try to, I try not to beat up myself up too badly. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, I think I helped myself to not be as stressed mm-hmm. um, because I knew that I was trying my best, that I was doing my best with, with the information that I had at the time and with the capabilities that I had at the time. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, and I, I, as I mentioned earlier, kind of went with the flow and my life has always been around, you know, just being very action oriented, kind of what's the next step, what's the next step, not necessarily planning way in advance. And with the three boys at the time and still traveling for work, um, both myself and my husband were traveling yeah. uh, for work. He was also a consultant. That. Yes. So we adopted the mindset of we'll keep going until it doesn't work anymore. And, and we found solutions along the way. Mm -hmm. If we had planned, you know, one year, two years, three years, five years in advance, 10 years in advance, it's like, we would have given up because it was too hard Mm -hmm. and thinking about it, it was too hard. Mm -hmm. But when we took it one day at a time, one week at a time, we kept on going until it didn't work anymore. Um, Then there were opportunities that opened up that we didn't realize were there. Um, And we had, resilience, you know, and strengths that we didn't know we had (laughs) to begin with. 
Yeah. Um, and so it's uh, it's been helpful to have that kind of a mindset. Yeah. And, and, you know, you serve on more boards than I even have time to mention here. And so, I mean, it just goes on and on and what you're involved in. But I think we should give a quick shout out to your husband. <laughs> and uh, you must have a fabulous partner. And, uh, you know, anyone who's thinking about getting married and also wants a career and all that, I mean, be really careful about who you pick. Mm-hmm. Need support. Do you agree with Absolutely. that? Absolutely. I, I do. I do. I, I, I mean, I would not be able to do and pursue my what I believe to be my purpose and my passions if I did not have a life partner who <laughs> is not only supportive of me, um, but also is um, is taking the responsibility and the accountability for um, at least 50%, if not more, yeah. of the responsibilities that we have at home. My husband, Eric, is pretty amazing. He's, he's a quiet, um, he's a quiet individual. He's not out there in the community or out there like I am. Um, he's, uh, he's more of an introvert type, but man, he, um, he, he makes things happen for us as a family. Mm -hmm. And he takes care of, uh, of many things that, uh, are not my strong suit. <laughs> and so in, in a lot of ways, we, we balance it, uh, ourselves out. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to make sure we get a little bit of a chance to hear your perspective on um, the the differences between these now four generations of aspiring, uh, ambitious, uh, educated women in the workplace today. Now we have the Gen Zs. I mean, uh, the first batch of them are already entering the workplace in their early 20s now. Um, what do you see? I mean, as a leader who has responsibility for tapping the talent and engaging some teamwork there between 21,000 uh, professionals, um, what do you see as uh, maybe some of the areas of friction and maybe opportunities for us to come together, particularly in terms of women, these different generations of women? W what are your observations on what's going on, Tier? I think the this next generation of women are unapologetic. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, unapologetic about... Uh, what they care about, about the purpose, you know, in life and the role that they see that they have in the world. You know, they're very, they're much, much more engaged in the community than I ever was when I was at their age. My kids yeah. now, my four boys now, I mean, they, you know, anything they wanted to learn, all they need to do is Google it, right. you know, go to YouTube. Right. Um, so the, the world is, is completely open and, um, and, you know, it's, they have access to so much information. And mm -hmm. so um, I, I think they're unapologetic about how you near know, the role that they want to play in the community and in the world, and they're going after it and they're finding ways um, to accomplish what they're looking to achieve. Yeah. Another positive thing that I think uh, that it's been great for me to see is just how much they care about our world and how much they care about humanity. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think that's different, you know, from our, from, from my generation. Uh, my generation, it was very much about caring about our own, our own careers, mm -hmm. right? What individual do I achievement. Do? Uh, yeah. Yes, individual achievement. Whereas this next generation is more collective. Yeah. Have you so, heard uh, this, uh, have you heard this, uh, okay, boomer? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Push back from my son today. Whoa. And they, they, they call they call boomers uh, or they call themselves sometimes zoomers. Mm -hmm. Zoomers. <laughs> Love it. 
I well, I really l- actually like what you had to say, Tierra. Um, it's it was actually a very res- refreshing version of it because mostly what I've heard is, oh, you're just shutting down the conversation when you say, okay, boomer. You're just silencing us. You're silencing the boomers. And that usually makes me roll my eyes because to me, the whole reason that okay, boomer happened in the first place is. So being a millennial, I see it as millennial. Millennials feel like they haven't been listened to. You know, exactly. they feel like they're mm-hmm. having a conversation with people who have their fingers in their ears. Ooh. And so mm-hmm. when they try and add to the conversation, what and what they get back is, no, you're not listening. I think it's important for people to realize that it was born out of frustration at feeling like we're here to inherit the world because that's the natural process. And yet we feel like, you know, we're we're playing backseat driver. You know, like we're taking our driver's test, but we're not given a chance to drive yet. You know, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like a generation of people who want to take the wheel, who want to drive. And Mm -hmm. and yet what we are faced with is a bunch of people like, okay, maybe next time, maybe next time Mm -hmm. you can drive. Maybe you can drive after I get us home. For anyone who hasn't noticed, this year, millennials became the biggest presence in the workforce. Mm -hmm. Is that right, dear? That's right. That's right. And at at Ernst & Young, I think we have 75%, I don't remember the exact statistics, something like 75% of our workforce are... um, I don't know, I don't know, 30 or younger or 25 or younger. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, in professional services, it's, uh, we have a very uh, young workforce. And so we better, uh, Monica, to your point, I mean, we better change our tune and start listening more, right, yeah. than, than controlling. Yeah, well, and to bring it all together, you know, I think the younger generations definitely still need the boomers. But I think that the boomers also need to teach but step back a little bit you know we still need you we still need you but you also need us to to start being a bigger part of it i think there's there's been good progress but we still have a long ways to go and um we need to to keep at it well and thank you for being with us um our conversations focus on leadership uh, power and gender tier would you give us a final thought that has helped you tap into your power because you have had so much experience and I'm sure you've got a lot of power to share. When I go back to whenever I need a, a, a kind of a, a shot of uh, power to get through a challenge or something is, is just to my, to my purpose um, and what I stand for and what I'm fighting for regardless of what job I'm in or what role you know, I'm in at the time. Um, and just going back to my core beliefs and my core values of um, creating uh, a world and creating a work environment where every single human being can feel uh, a sense of, you know, that strong worthiness and that, and that they have strengths and um, power that they can give to the world, you know, positive power that they give to the world. And how can I help to bring that out more so in myself as well as more so from, from others? And that work, regardless of what environment I'm in, is a, is a constant. Um, and particularly for our women and, and the work that I get to do every day to help inspire and to help develop and help empower our, our women at EY and beyond, um, it's, I think it's tapping into um, their individual purpose and to keep that strong and to stand in their truth 
Uh, and with that, I think they can find uh, stronger courage, you know, from one another in order to keep going. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Tier Sai Suzuki, EY business executive, mother of four sons, activist for human rights, gender equity, and diverse leadership. Um, Tier, you are a living testimony that leadership is, uh, isn't just about yourself. It's really about making a difference and um, the difference that you make on your watch um, for others as well. Thank you. It's been great to be with both you and Monica. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing. Thanks for being here. And thanks for joining us, everyone. Uh, I'm Ann Doyle. I'm Monica Doyle. And let's all go power up. up. Thanks for joining us at Powering Up, everyone. We hope you'll subscribe and share us with your network. And Monica and I would love to hear from you through the Power Up Women Facebook page or at Ann Doyle LDR. And remember, Monica, tell them about it. Power is the currency for getting things done. So claim yours and put it to work. See you next week.